Good morning. I'm excited to do this. It's been a while. They wouldn't let me speak for a while until they made sure you were on board with coming to church here. So <laughs> they held me back till December. So we assume you're part of it now. Um, so a couple of things I need to let you, let you know today. When I'm done speaking, I'm going to be leaving. Um, that way I don't have to hear any criticism of my message. So I'll assume everything you say is positive. No, I promised my son I'd take him to a football game before the season was over, and today's the last day of the regular season. And so um, we're going to go to the Raiders-Broncos game. And growing up in New Mexico, um, we bordered two states that were important, Texas and Colorado. We also bordered Arizona, but they didn't count because they had the Cardinals. So we'd get <laughs> Cowboys games and Broncos games. And as a kid, I grew up watching John Elway play. And I don't know if any of you guys have people you can identify as like the, the childhood superstar athlete, you know, depending on your era, uh, who that may be. Uh, for me, it was John Elway, watching him scramble in the pocket, um, take his terrible team to three Super Bowls, one of which the 49ers and Joe Montana just crushed them. Um, and some of you guys... <laughs> Yeah, some of you guys to this day think Montana's a better quarterback than Elway, and we pray for you regularly. Um, so I'm deciding today I'm going to take my son. I'm a huge Broncos fan. I, I love them. They're my team, up and down. Um, but today when I go, there's other things in life I love. I love being able to chew my food with all my teeth. I, I love being able to walk properly. So today when you look for me on TV, don't look for the guy in the Broncos shirt standing out like an idiot. I will be wearing my Raiders shirt because I value my life. So after I've done speaking, I am leaving to take my son to the game. But um, we're going to be looking at some confessions of faith today. And we're going to be looking at the life of Martha a little bit and mainly Peter. And so they made some great profound professions and confessions of faith. Um, that we see. They had times they messed up, but they had times where they really delivered some profound truth. And so we want to look at those today, and we're going to start with Martha. So if you want to turn to Luke chapter 10, we're going to kind of look at um, the one thing she's probably most known for, but then we're going to jump to John chapter 11 after this in Luke chapter 10. And so Martha kind of gets a bad rap. Mar both our characters today sometimes get a bad rap, but they actually had very uh, profound moments. And so we're going to read in Luke 10 and verse 38. And it says this, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be, to be made. She came, out, came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you're worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. They're in an unnamed village in this verse. Most likely it's Bethany, which is about two miles away from Jerusalem. And they were there, and there's Mary and Martha, and we learn later in John chapter 11, when you kind of correspond the Gospels, that they had a brother named Lazarus, okay? And now, for some reason, uh, we see many times, a lot of us, we know this passage about Martha, and we're quick to be critical of her, um, and it seems that way in many times in life. We're quick to be critical of others when we find something they don't like, almost as if being critical of someone else makes us appear better or look better. But we're going to see in a moment that, that Martha has this profound uh, statement of faith. And also, as we look at the life of Peter, we can be very quick to jump on him and say, look at what he did wrong here, look at what he did wrong here. And many times in my mind, I like to think, well, when's the last time you preached and 3,000 people got saved? Um, you know, we're very critical of Peter, but he did great things for the Lord. 
And here we're going to see Martha in just a moment make, make her confession of faith. And we're going to turn and look at this and see that Martha really did get it. You know, at this point in time, this is more Jesus giving her like a loving admonishment, not um, like this harsh, critical slam. It's more of saying, Martha, the main thing you need to be doing is being focused on me. Your attention should be on Jesus, not, not on all these distractions. Martha wasn't necessarily doing anything wrong. She was making preparations. She was, uh, we can see she was probably a hard worker. We find that in, in the Bible. And she cared about making sure everything was done correctly. But he's saying, all of that doesn't matter. Your attention and focus should be on me. And, and that's what Mary's doing. So it wasn't necessarily that Martha's doing something terrible. It's just that she let her attention and focus get off of who Christ was. But we're going to turn over and, if you will, turn to John 11. And we're going to see this other part of Martha to where she really did get it. She understood who Jesus was, and she makes this confession of faith in John chapter 11, verse 25. Now, what's going on here is Lazarus, their, her brother, has died. Jesus is on his way to see them, and Martha hears that Jesus is coming, and so she runs out to meet Christ. And she's going to go out and meet him as he's on his way to Bethany to see them. And they end up having this conversation, and we're going to pick it up in verse 25. Jesus told her, talking to Martha, I'm the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? Yes, Lord, she told him. I have always believed that you are Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world from God. And so Martha makes this confession of faith and says, yes, I believe. I believe that you are the one who's come from God. And so in all her busyness and her times where maybe her mind got off track and she wasn't as focused on the Lord as she needed to be, she makes this profound confession and says, I have always believed. I believe that you were Lord. Okay, and so she confesses her faith. And for a second here, we're going to jump back in a minute and look at this. But we're going to turn to Peter in just a second. So if you want to start going to Matthew 16, we're going to look at one of his, confe or his confession of faith. And Peter's known for all sorts of things. We could probably all list several things Peter's known for. Um, he's known for walking on water. Maybe that might be the most well-known. He is known for um, preaching on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, where 3,000 people get saved. I think one of the ones he's most known for is his three denials of Christ. I think a lot of us would say, if we were to say, name the first thing that comes to your mind about Peter, that might be it, is where he denied Christ three times on the night of his arrest and trial. Well, here in Matthew 16, Peter is just going to make this, this amazing confession of faith. And we know him again for the negative, but he said some very great truths. And so what's going on here in Matthew 16 is Jesus and his disciples are going to a region called Caesarea Philippi. This is about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. So they're in the northern part of Israel, um, and it's at the base of Mount Hermon. Now, Mount Hermon stands about 9,200 feet high, and it is known for this one thing. Does anyone know? Is it known for in the area of Israel? Anybody? What's that? Anybody? It's known for snow. <laughs> it, it, it snows enough there. It's the only place in Israel they can have skiing. So if you ever want to depart from the Sierras and go skiing in Israel, Mount Hermon's the place to go, okay? That's just a little tidbit on Mount Hermon. Um, but they were going in this area of Caesarea Philippi, and it was known for having large springs that, fed, uh, that continue to feed the Jordan River, and they make it a very fertile area. Okay, and one of these springs comes out of a cave. And around the 3rd century B.C., from this spring that fed out of this cave into, this, into the Jordan River, they started worshiping the god known as Pan. Now, Pan was a half-goat, half-man. This was the god of Pan. Half-goat, half half-man. And I know Jeff Souza's here today, 
and he'll know what I'm about to reference. And when I saw, heard of the goat man, I thought of pig man, if you're a Seinfeld fan. Half man, half pig, okay? So that was for you, Jeff. Um, the half man, half pig on the episode of Seinfeld where Kramer runs through the hospital looking for pig man. Well, in 3rd century BC, they were already worshiping a god of goat man, and he was known as Pan. And so they were worshiping him in this area. Also, in this area of Caesarea Philippi, there was a cliff. And on this cliff, they would carve out niches, and they would kind of carve them out, and they would place coins or statues of false gods or of deities they worshiped. And so what's interesting here is we read this, and we have some context of what's going on in Matthew 16. We, we see that they're in a very pagan area, a very pluralistic area where they worship many gods. There's not just one god. They are worshiping all sorts of different gods, and they put coins and idols, and they worship into this cave of the god Pan. And this is where Jesus takes them, and he's about to ask this question. And so knowing that this is the context of a, a, multi, a multi-God worshiping society, and Jesus is about to ask what he asks them here in Matthew 16. And so it, it, it kind of sounds like it could be our culture in, in a sense, very pluralistic uh, of multiple gods. And so let's pick it up in Matthew 16, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Very easy sometimes for us to answer a question when it's asked of what other people think. You know, if I was to say, who do you think so-and-so is? Or what would, you, what would they say about this person? Well, then they get an answer in a very easy way. And so they start to answer and respond to Jesus on who do these people think that I am. And so they say this. They say, they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And so this kind of the easy answer you get to give. I'm telling you what someone else thinks. We're reading a leadership book right now, and it said, when you have a thought, you can't use a they. Because that's easy. That's the easy way out. They think this. If you're going to have a they, they have to have a name. Okay? And they have to be identified because then, then it puts onus on it. And so Christ does this right now. He turns and he, then he says to them, but what about you? So now they have to answer for themselves. I can no longer answer, what do these people over here think about Jesus? He turns and looks at him and he says, but what do you say about me? It's no longer I get to say what someone else thinks about you. I have to answer and give an account for what I say about you. And who do I think you are? And, and Peter, many times known for his um, ability to speak quickly, is the first one to answer, at least what we see here in the scripture. And, and at this moment, though, he gives a, a profound truth. And he says this in verse 16. Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. You see, they're in this area where multiple gods are worshipped. And at this very moment, I mean, could you imagine, maybe they're watching someone offer a sacrifice to the goat god of Pan. And Jesus says, who do you say that I am? seeing what other people are worshiping. Maybe they're watching someone carve a niche into the side of a hill and place an idol of another God. And Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And so with all this idol worship and false God worship and worship of other deities, Christ says, you see all this, but who do you say I am? Do you get it? And Peter answers him. And with that as the background, he says, you are the Christ. And Peter's not referring to Jesus' last name. It's not Jesus Christ. Like, it wouldn't be like 
Clifton, you are Curry, or Ron, you are Spear. That's not what he's saying. He's not identifying someone's last name. He's identifying the title of who Jesus was. Jesus was the Christ. And when he says that, that's the Greek word for Christos. And this basically means the anointed one, the chosen one. The Greek equivalent of the word means Messiah. So going back to Martha's confession of faith, she says the same thing Peter says. She just says it with the Hebrew word of Jesus, Messiah, and he says Jesus Christ. And so Jesus was the first name given to Mary by the angel Gabriel. Christ is his title of who he is and what he's here to accomplish. And it can mean he's here to be the deliverer, the savior, the one God sent to be the savior. And so when when Peter acknowledges this, he's saying, Jesus, you are the savior. You are the Christ. Not just Jesus, your last name is Christ. Jesus, this is who you are. You are the Savior, and I believe that. And so he has this confession of faith in this area of, of a multiple uh, gods being worshipped, and Peter declares, no, Jesus, you are the Savior. You are the one. All right, so as we read this, some other things that stood out to me in reading this is about Peter and, and being the rock. So you see, Peter is foundational to the early church, but he's not the foundation of it. Peter, uh, little rock could also be a, a translation of his name. And so he's very important and instrumental in starting the early church. But our, our, our foundation, our bedrock of salvation doesn't rest in who Peter was. See, I don't lose my salvation because Peter messed up from time to time. Peter was used greatly, and he was foundational in the early church, but he's not the foundation of the church. The foundation of the church is what he confessed. The truth that Peter confessed, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that's the foundation of the church. And that's the bedrock that Jesus then proclaims, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And here we are 2,000 years later from Peter's confession of faith, and we stand in this church today proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so the gates of hell 2,000 years later have not overcome that truth, and they've not overcome God's church. And and when I say church, I even big C, the church, the church that's all over, the church that's meeting um, all over America today, and that met all around the world, and the church that's still proclaiming this truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and he tells us there that the gates of hell aren't going to overcome that truth. You know, they may overcome a, a church, a, a small, small C church from time to time, but the church as a whole that proclaims that truth, the gates of hell will not prevail against. The bride of Christ will not stop, will not perish. And so we continue to proclaim that truth today that he is Christ, the son of the living God. And Peter is used in such a great way that we're going to continue to look at. But before he's used in this great way, he hits his low point on the night of Christ's arrest. See, Christ was arrested, taken before the high priest, and brought on trial. And what does Peter do in that moment where Christ is arrested and brought on trial? He denies Christ three times. He's ashamed. He's not even, I don't even think he's ashamed. It's that he's afraid of what may happen to him. But yet we're about to see Peter, man, after Christ's resurrection... He becomes one of the boldest proclaimers of Christ the world has ever seen. And we're going to continue looking at this ongoing profession of faith. If you want to, later on your own, you can read in Acts 2 when he preaches on the day of Pentecost. Peter speaks in Acts 3 and Acts 5. You know, basically the first third of the book of Acts is Peter, just about. And then it becomes Paul in in chapter 9. But it's a lot about Peter. But what I want to focus on is just a verse in particular. It's one of the most famous verses in Scripture and it's found in Acts chapter 4. And this is where I want us to look at. Peter continues to proclaim this truth 
that he so eloquently spoke in Matthew 16. Now in Acts chapter 4, Peter's going to get up and give a defense in front of the Sanhedrin, this religious council, and in front of the earthly high priest. And what's important here to recognize is this is the group of people that was involved with the arrest and trial, ultimately leading to the crucifixion of Jesus. And Peter denied Christ three times when he was out of fear for what this group would do to him. And now he's standing before this group. And if there was like this redemptive moment for Peter, not that we're redeemed by works, but kind of our earthly redemptive moment, this is it for Peter. He's about to stand in front of this religious council that is going to, that, that it sentenced Christ to death. And he's about to stand up and be bold. And, and, and so to give you an idea, uh, this is nowhere near the same, but to get an idea of like earthly redemptive moments, not eternal redemptive moments. I think back like in high school, we got beat by a basketball team by 50 points in a high school basketball game. Guys, a high school basketball game is only 32 minutes long and they beat us by 50 points. They scored 122 points in a 32 minute game. We scored 72. I bet you 72 points would beat Oakdale almost every time. I mean, we weren't, that wasn't, that wasn't bad. All right, in a 32 minute game and they beat us by 50. Full court pressed us the whole game. And so then they had to come to our, they were a division, they were in our division, so we played them twice each year. So then they were coming to our stadium. And do you think we wanted to play them again? We wanted, we wanted that redemptive moment to try to beat them, to not be embarrassed, to be able to walk off the court with your head held high. Now they had two guys going to Division I schools, and I was the tallest guy on our team, so we were at a, we were at a disadvantage. <laughs> Okay, we weren't exactly NBA players. We had no one going to college for basketball. Um, And we were at a severe disadvantage. But you know what? That game, we really fought hard. We still lost, but we only lost by two. It's a lot more admirable than losing by 50. And this was kind of our, as much as a loss can be this redemptive moment, that's what that was for us. Well, here we see Peter's redemptive moment. He gets to stand in front of this religious council that he was so afraid of that he denied his Savior three times. And what's he going to do when he stands in front of him this time? Let's pick it up. Acts 4, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this. You and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. And here he continues his confession of faith that he made in Matthew 16. He says this, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to man, whereby we must be saved. And so Peter stands in front of them and the same people who crucified Jesus and who arrested him and who Peter was so afraid of says, you're the, you're the ones who rejected the, the cornerstone and salvation is found in no one else other than by Jesus. Man, you talk about a total 180 of not being afraid any longer. Peter went from being afraid and denying Christ to boldly proclaiming them to, these, to their very face, saying salvation is found in no one else but Jesus Christ, and he continues this proclamation of faith. We also have a church tradition and history concerning the death of Peter to show that he continued boldly proclaiming that confession of faith. We don't find it in Scripture, the events concerning his death, but we feel we're pretty accurate with historical accounts and church tradition that's been passed down that Peter died in Rome where he was still preaching the gospel, and in his death he was crucified upside down. 
And so you have Peter the denier goes to Peter the bold proclaimer. What, what, a, what a difference. But he took this confession of faith about who Jesus was and it just transformed him. And upon that rock, that small foundation, the little rock of Peter, the underlying foundation that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, Peter goes out and proclaims that truth and is instrumental in starting the church. Sees people saved, sees people turn to the Lord, and he never stopped proclaiming this truth. So quickly, I want us to look at a few confessions of faith sometimes that we use that are not accurate. You see, the, really, the confession of faith that matters is who do you, what do you say about Jesus? Who do you say that he is? Unfortunately, many of us get it messed up. And so we have different confessions of faith that while they may be helpful, they're not saving confessions of faith. You know, a lot of times people say this. They'll say, I'm a good person. That's my confession of faith is I'm a good person. Well, I don't want to be the one to tell you this, but you're, you're not a good person. I don't even want to look at you because you'll all get mad at me in our self-esteem generation. You're not a good person. If you're a good person, then the Bible is wrong because it tells us we're all sinners. We were conceived in sin. Sin has been passed down from Adam. Original sin affects all of us. So if we're sinners, how are we a good person? The two don't equate. See, we're not, we're not good people. We're sinners in need of a Savior. We're sinners who've been messed up and we've, we've had an offense against a holy and perfect God and we cannot stand before Him without something to stand in the gap. Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice. So to say we're a good person is our confession of faith is not accurate. Yet for some reason, people claim that I'm a good person and that's how I'm getting to heaven be a whole lot of people not in heaven if they claim that their confession of faith is I'm a good person. Another thing people claim is that they'll say, I've done good deeds or I've done good works. And what does Ephesians 2 tell us about that? Our good works don't cut it either. Even the good things I can go out and do will not cut it. They will not earn my salvation. Salvation is not found in our good works. None of us can boast in what I'm able to accomplish. See, I could go out today and help, help the lady load her groceries that cost less, and I could be kind to the people, let them go in front of me, and I could do all these things. But that doesn't cut it. That, I'm still a sinner. The underlying truth is I'm still grieved and offended at a holy and perfect God. So my good works don't cut it. Our confession of faith can't be, I've done good works, because we'll still fall short. Another confession of faith we often hear people make is basically they say, I go to church, or I'm religious. I got the religious stuff down. You know another guy who had the religious stuff down? It's the Apostle Paul. Before that, he was known as Saul. And he had the religious stuff really down. If you want to turn to Philippians 3, we're going to read that in just a second. None of us could compete with him. And he's going to tell us so. Paul's, Paul, Paul could be kind of arrogant at times almost in his writing. Um, he was very just blunt and to the point. And we're going to find this in Philippians 3. Um, this kind of t telling us how it is. And so let's pick it up in verse 4. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. So if you think you can be confident in the flesh, Paul says, I have more. You, you ain't got nothing on me. He says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now listen, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church... 
Now listen to this. this. This is a bold statement. As for righteousness based on the law, the Old Testament, as for righteousness based on the Old Testament, the law, what does he say? Faultless. I couldn't even dare make that claim. I mean, Paul says, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness that comes from my own, uh, that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. You see, Paul had the religious stuff down. So if we think we're religious, we don't compete with Paul. He had the religious stuff down. And what does he say? He counts it all as garbage to knowing Jesus Christ. He says, all of this stuff that I had down that I did, I counted as garbage to, the, to knowing Jesus Christ. And that's where it goes. At the end of all this, that's what our confession of faith has to be. I believe in Jesus Christ as Savior. Not I believe that I'm a good person or I've done good works or I've been religious. So what you come to church sometimes. I'm glad you're here. I truly am. At the end of the day, if you stand before God and all you say is you came to church a few times, none of us desire that for you. We desire for you to stand before God and say, I I claim Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, the one who died on the cross and rose from the grave for my sins. I don't care if you came to this church and received Christ. I don't care if you go to another church and receive Christ. What I hope you claim is Jesus Christ when you stand before God. And what Paul's saying is here is all that stuff doesn't matter. This religious stuff doesn't matter. What matters is our faith in Christ. That's what I want. And that's the truth we've got to get, the truth that Peter confessed, the truth that Martha confessed, that Jesus, you are the Messiah, you're the Christ, you're the Savior. I believe in you. That's what I'm standing on for my salvation. So what is your confession of faith? Is it that Jesus is the Christ? Very simple, very short. We see the, um, the, the, the ta- tax collector standing in the temple. What did he say? His confession of faith, so simple. Couldn't even look to heaven. And he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Man, just so simple, but yet so profound. He, he, couldn't, even, he couldn't even acknowledge, look up. You know, sometimes we just get off track and we think it has to be something more than it is. You know, Paul wrote another part that gives us a really good idea of what a confession of faith can look like in Romans chapter 10, verse 9 through 13. He said this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it is by confessing with your mouth that you are saved. As the scripture tells us, anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Jew and Gentile are the same in this respect. They have the same Lord who gives generously to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You know, many times we want this great conversion story. I I try to always encourage our teenagers... um, uh, because you hear some real testimonies of terrible things and you hear people come to the Lord, and, and sometimes it's almost like we desire these, these great testimonies, like we want this thief on the cross testimony. I want to tell uh, how bad things were and where the Lord's taken me. And, and those are great because we see the Lord's grace and mercy in those. But every bit as great and as it is awesome is the confession of faith you can make at any point in your life. See, the angels don't celebrate anymore because this person who was this drastic sinner comes to know the Lord as this person who was just barely a sinner because we're all sinners and we're all separated from God. 
And so the best confession of faith you can make is the one you make in your life right now, wherever you're at. So maybe you haven't done these terrible, horrible things and you don't have this drastic testimony. You still need Jesus. And maybe you have, and you still need Jesus. And that's the best confession of faith you can make. The one you make with your heart. You know, so some people were, I, I've been with people and seen them come to know the Lord and they were eloquent prayers. And I'm like, how did you say that? I couldn't say that. And I've, I've been to Bible college and I wouldn't word a prayer like that. And other people confess faith in Christ and they barely get any words out. And they can't hardly speak. And yet they still confess their faith in Christ. We, we, we sometimes tie into this too much of this earthly aspect of like, well, you have to say certain words and you have to maybe say the prayer with a pastor or you have to cry or you have to do this. And, and, and we, we get messed up. What we find in Scripture is this big truth that there's Jesus Christ who is Savior and we have to confess our belief in Him as Savior to become a believer. We don't have to start adding a bunch of other stuff to it. Now, there's other things that are good to do after that. But as far as this moment of salvation, you, know, you don't have to come pray with me or pray with Ron. You can confess Christ right where you're at. You can confess him on a job site. You can confess him at home and confess your belief in him as Savior. Man, the best confession of faith we can make is the one we make. Don't make it more than it is, but don't make it less than it is. Confess Christ as Savior. So I want to end with a couple questions. And that's this. What is your confession of faith? If you had to write your confession of faith the way Peter, uh, we see his written in Matthew 16, what would yours read? If Jesus were here and took you up kind of on the hillside overlooking Oakdale, and he asked you, who do the people of Oakdale say that I am? And you could rattle off answers easily. Well, my friends say this, and my other friends say this, and so we could always answer for what they say easier. But then he turned to you and said, okay, that's great, but who do you say that I am? What's your confession of faith concerning Christ? If you were asked, who do you say that Jesus is? Do you say he's your Lord and Savior? He is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Or would you say he's a good person? He did some great things. He's a good guy to teach my kids about. Or would you say, Jesus, I believe you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, the one who came to the world to save us. Now, if you make that confession of faith and you say, I have made that confession of faith, then, then, then I would say by all earthly standards that we could tell that you're a believer and that you're now a child of God. So now the follow-up question to that is, what do we do with that confession of faith? If we confess faith in Christ, what does that look like in our life? For Peter... He made this great confession in Matthew 16 and then he kind of went like this and he had these great moments up and down and then he had his night of denial. And, and I think for Peter, that was probably rock bottom. But from that point forward, man, he set the world on fire for Jesus Christ. And so there's moments, ups and downs as we try to follow the Lord. But if we truly confess faith in Christ, how does that look in our life? How does that play out? How does that play out when you wake up and go to school? your confession of faith? How does that play out when you go to your job? How does that play out when we're at home? If we confess faith in Christ, it needs to be more than just this one-time thing we said. It's this ongoing pursuit, and we can look at Peter in the book of Acts and his ongoing pursuit of proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Do we continue to proclaim that truth and live it out? If you've never made that confession of faith, 
as we sang in our first song, today is the day you can make that confession of faith. Come, I would love to say, come talk to me, but I'm not going to be here. I already told you that. <laughs> and talk, talk with someone around here. They would love to share with you. It doesn't have to be, even be a pastor. And I don't like the gap we put sometimes in our people and pastors. If you're a believer, you're a, be- you're a believer. You can lead someone to the Lord. And you know what? If you've made that confession of faith, think through that. Am I living that out? Am I proclaiming that confession the way Peter did? The ongoing confession. Not a one time I proclaim and I'm done. But this ongoing proclamation of who Christ is. That He is the Son of the living God. He is the Savior. Let's pray. God, we are grateful that you sent Christ to this earth. And as we celebrate this time of year and the fact that you sent him, may we never forget you did not send him just to be a baby, but you sent him to be our Savior and our Deliverer. May we boldly confess faith in Christ. If we've never received him or made that initial confession, that saving confession of faith, I pray that you'll work in hearts and lives today and that people will make that confession of faith to Christ as Savior. And if we've made it, God, give us the strength to boldly proclaim it and live boldly for you in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you please stand?